Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And this week, for a change, instead of having Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, to talk to us, he's uh, taken a well-deserved holiday. I'm delighted to say that we're going to be talking to Nick Greenwood, who is the manager of Mighton Global Opportunities. This is a trust where we've mentioned several times. It's an investment trust that only invests in other investment trusts and has a particularly distinctive style. It's looking for special situations and discount opportunities and, and the kind of things that only a specialist manager can find. It's not a generalist investment trust, but it's a specialist one. And Nick has been the manager of this one since uh, 2004, so and many years of experience in investment trusts. Before we get on to that, I'm going to do a quick run-through of the most interesting corporate announcements and results this week. A truncated version, you'll be happy to hear, in the absence of Simon and his uh, expertise. But uh, it's been a week when the markets have edged higher. In fact, both the uh, Dow Jones and the S&P 500 have hit new all-time highs this week. But the market's been relatively quiet, a modest gain there in overseas markets and also in the UK where the all-share index has edged up. And for investment trusts, again, been pretty similar story. Uh, they're still trading on a pretty tight average discount of around 2.5% and uh, still lagging the UK all-share index, the average so far this year by a few percentage points. But despite the news from the States that uh, two of the members of the Federal Reserve's uh, Open Market Committee come out in public to say that the Federal Reserve should start to uh, reverse some of its extraordinary exceptional measures of monetary stimulus uh, sooner rather than later. Obviously, all eyes have been on the bond market, where, which remains pretty unmoved this week. It hasn't changed very much. So a quiet background, but markets have been rising pretty steadily all year. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see some sort of correction at some stage. So moving on to announcements, we've heard from Acorn Income Fund, AIF, where the board, I think somewhat to its embarrassment, has had to revise its proposals. It was, you will recall, proposing to appoint BMO Global Asset Management to manage the fund on a new sustainable global equity income strategy. But following uh, consultation with shareholders and having heard from some other managers, it appears that the board is now having second thoughts somewhat unusual state of affairs. And the EGM and AGM that was being proposed to uh, approve these changes will not now be held in August this month, as previously expected. Instead, the board is going to consider further details about what to do with the trust, and they will be published as soon as practicable, and the board says no later than mid-September. So a change, of course, there looks likely in the offing. Interesting development. Moving on, we can talk about GCP Student Living, that's uh, DIGS, D-I-G-S is the ticker, where we've seen the circular for the cash acquisition of this company by a company called Gemini Jersey JVLP. The circular has been published for this particular transaction, and assuming it goes through, which requires shareholder approval, it will be expected to become effective in the fourth quarter of 2021. So that'll be the end of Diggs as a listed investment trust. Scottish Mortgage, meanwhile, that's SMT, is the ticker, has issued two long-term fixed-rate 
senior unsecured private placement notes. In other words, this is uh, fixed rate long term debt. Two issues, one for 100 million, 15 year note uh, with a fixed coupon of 2.03%. And the second one also for 100 million is a 25 year note with a fixed coupon of 2.3%. So in the historical context, these are astonishingly low rates of interest for long term fixed rate borrowing. But obviously 200 million of gearing for Scottish mortgage, which is uh, has a market capitalization of well over £10 billion. This is pretty small beer in terms of the impact on the gearing of the company. But uh, it is indicative, I think, of the uh, strong performance the Scottish mortgage has had and the ability of trusts like that to uh, secure borrowing on terms that would have been thought remarkable only a few years ago. And obviously, if it turns out that inflation over the next uh, 15 or 25 years is higher than currently and uh, significantly higher, then this will going to look like an extraordinarily good piece of business. Moving on again to Pershing Square Holdings, that's uh, ticker PSH. Uh, this is the US hedge fund investment trust managed by Bill Ackman. You'll recall that they had a complicated transaction to uh, establish a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, called Pershing Square Holdings Tontine, and that uh, remains the essence, but it's planned to take a 10% stake in the Universal Music Group, which is the largest uh, music royalties and cataloging company, to buy that from Vivendi, the French conglomerate, for $2.8 billion. That was announced before, but that was uh, effectively ruled out by a decision of the SEC. And so now Pershing Square Holdings, the investment trust itself, is going to acquire that stake in Universal Music Group. It's starting off by acquiring, has acquired a 7.1% stake in Universal Music, uh, and it plans to complete the rest in due course, the additional 2.9% at the same price per share, which is uh, $21.78. And that'll be done by the 9th of September. So far, that'll be a big chunk, even for Pershing Square Holdings to absorb uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. The shares remain on a quite substantial discount. Moving on again, we've heard from Tritax Eurobox, E-B-O-X is the ticker, where they are uh, seeking shareholder approval for a couple of transactions because they are with related parties, and those meetings will be held shortly. Tufton Oceanic Assets has uh, completed a small placing to raise 12.4 million US dollars at a price of $1.18, which is a 3.6% premium to NAV at 30th of June. The issue, which was equivalent to 3.8% of the shares in issue, was materially oversubscribed. And they, it was limited by the fact that the uh, shareholder approval for the issuance last year at its AGM uh, has hit its ceiling. Uh, the new shares will start trading on the 11th of August and are eligible for the dividend that's going to be paid in November. And the proceeds will be invested in a pipeline of second-hand vessels. Uh, Tufton Oceanic, ticker SHIP, S-H-I-P, is in the business of leasing large ships, container ships, as is Taylor Maritime Investments, TMI and TMIP are the tickers for this one, which is acquiring seven Japanese-built handy-sized bulk vessels for a total of 107.8 million US dollars. So both these uh, trusts, Tufton Oceanic and Taylor Maritime, 
uh, uh, relatively recent newcomers to the market uh, and this asset class of large bulk containers and shipping proving very popular at the moment both companies trading at a substantial premium at the minute BMO Real Estate Investments, that's B-R-E-I, has published a circular seeking shareholder approval to remove the limits on its weighting in the different commercial property sectors. In other words, between offices, industrial properties and retail properties. And the reason for that is that uh, the recent growth in industrial properties, uh, these are warehouses and logistics and those sort of things, combined with the fact that this trust had been selling some retail assets, it's in danger of exceeding the maximum weighting of 50% that's currently allowed for investments in the industrial sector. So this is a good indication of how the changing fortunes of the commercial property sector are forcing uh, traditional conventional commercial property trusts to uh, adapt the way they behave. Obviously, uh, offices have been very badly hit recently. Shopping centres are under pressure because of the rise of online shopping and while industrial properties such as warehouses and so on have been becoming more popular. Next, we've heard from both the music royalty companies. Interesting it will be when uh, Pershing Square Holdings completes its uh, acquisition of its 10% stake in Universal Music to see how the performance of that particular company compares with the two listed investment trusts that specialise in music royalties and the acquisition of music catalogues. Uh, the two trusts, Roundhill Music Royalty, RHM, and Hypnosis Songs, ticker S-O-N-G, once we've had good calls to mention several times in recent weeks. Uh, they've both been announced another acquisition this week. Roundhill Music Royalty has acquired a music publishing catalogue from the former guitarist in the rock band Yes, Trevor Rabin, uh, who is also a, a fairly prolific film score composer. And the catalogue comprises 3,500 film cues and songs, including the number one hit, Owner of a Lonely Heart, as well as film scores for Armageddon, Enemy of the State and Bad Boys 2. Yes, I agree with you. I don't heard of some of these things as well. Never mind. Moving on. Hypnosis Songs, meanwhile, has acquired a catalogue from uh, Christine McVie, who is one of the principal writers and vocalists of Fleetwood Mac, who have been certainly one of the most successful commercial groups of the last 50 years I would say I remember listening to Christine McVie well a long time ago let's not go into that uh, she's written five of the 11 songs on the legendary Fleetwood Mac album Rumours which has sold more than 45 million copies worldwide uh, Hypnosis says the catalogue comprises 115 songs including 11 number one hits and generated at 1.7 million dollars of revenue in 2020. So both these music royalty companies are continuing on the acquisition trail. They both uh, shares are still trading at a premium despite uh, uh, quite a lot of ish secondary issuance recently. So remain in demand from investors. Interesting new category in the investment trust sector. And finally, worth giving a mention to a uh, recently launched investment trust called Literacy Capital. That is uh, ticker BOOK, book, not surprisingly. And this was only uh, came to the market in June. It's a rather interesting company where the majority of the shares are, are owned by the, uh, the founders of the company, more than 50% of the shares. 
but uh, they have an indistinctive approach. They are a venture capital trust that says their objective is to help develop early stage businesses by providing uh, not just money, but also uh, advice and uh, help. And it's distinctive because it has given a commitment to commit 0.9% of its value every year to support adult literacy in the UK. So a charitable purpose, uh, as well as trying to uh, make some money. An interesting little company uh, has a market cap of around 100 million at the moment and uh, is one of the best performers of the last uh, couple of months. And shares have proved very popular. I'm not sure whether that's because of the attractions of the business or because of this charitable objective, which is uh, slightly unusual. So moving on now very quickly to results, I'm going to skim through a few of these. We're starting off with uh, Witten Investment Trust. That's ticker WTAN. This is the uh, multi-manager trust that invests through a number of segregated mandates from well-known uh, and not so well-known uh, investment managers. They produce their interim results for the six months to the 30th of June, where the NAV total return was up 12.4% uh, against their benchmark of 11.4%. Uh, their benchmark is a composite benchmark consisting uh, of the MSCI AC World Index. That's 85% of the uh, benchmark and the MSCI UK IMI Index, which is the remaining 15%. So performing pretty much in line with the benchmark, although the shares have only produced a total return of 6% in that period as the discount widened out from 2.4% to 7.9%. And Witten has bought back 32.6 million shares or about 4% of the total issued share capital to at an average discount of 6.8%. So they're trying to protect the discount around that level. So a mixed bag of performance, as always, with the multi-manager trust. Some managers did particularly well, others did less well. Those who had portfolios positioned for cyclical recovery, such as Artemis and Lansdowne Partners, did particularly well. Those who, had, meanwhile, had a kind of quality and growth focused style, such as Linsel Train, Veritas and Jenison, delivered less strong returns. There's been a lot of style rotation, as we know, in the market over the last year. A big surge towards value cyclical companies from November after the vaccine was announced. And then in the last three months, something of a reversal with uh, growth stocks such as in the technology sector and small cap companies doing pretty well. But uh, again, this week, there'd been a little bit of sign of that maybe changing yet again with uh, technology companies being sold off a little bit and uh, one or two of the uh, value names doing slightly better. Bailey Gifford U.S. Growth Trust, meanwhile, that's USA is the ticker, launched not so long ago, about three years ago, and produced annual results for the year to the 31st of May. NAV total return was uh, an impressive 63%, uh, which compares with the rise in the S&P 500, while well, the total return of 22.4%, so well outperforming in the U.S. market, something that Investment management firms in this country have struggled to do for many, many years to prove themselves and to outperform the US market. But uh, Bailey Gifford, who's in their distinctive growth style, have done just that and uh, put together a very impressive track record since their launch in 2018. Over the year to the 31st of May, the Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust issued 45.1 million shares, an average premium of 6.4% raising 132.9 million. And seven private company investments have been made in the period as well, while four pre-existing private portfolio companies went public. 
So in common with some of the other Bailey Gifford Trusts, this trust doesn't invest solely in listed securities, but also invests in companies, uh, private companies, before they come to market. Though the as at the 31st of May, the portfolio had 20 private companies in all, uh, representing 16.5% of the net asset value. And the shares in the trust continue to trade around par at the moment. Moving on, Smithson Investment Trust, uh, that's S-S-O-N, is the ticker, managed by a gentleman called Simon Barnard. And this is part of the Fundsmith stable. They produced their interim results to the 30th of June. Again, NAV total return of 5.9%, uh, which compares to the MSCI World's smaller mid-cap index, a gain of 12.4%. So this is the first time that uh, the Smithson Trust has underperformed its benchmark index. Uh, it's done particularly well since it was launched. So this is the first time that it's a particular growth style, familiar from anybody who follows Fundsmith. Uh, this is investing in quality growth companies, but in the small and mid-cap area globally, rather than in the large-cap area, as of main Fundsmith fund does. The share price total return was 4.1%, as the premium fell slightly from 3.7% to 1.9%. Uh, however, Smith has been one of the most prolific issuers of new shares via secondary issuance. They've raised 311 million through issue of 18.7 million new shares at an average premium of 2.7%. And the shares continue to trade a little bit over par. So they have done very well. The performance has been good until this uh, last six-month period. And the shares remain in demand. Quick mention next of Diverse Income Trust. That's D-I-V-I is the ticker which uh, has produced its annual report for the year to the 31st of May. NAV total return in this case was 38.4%, which is well ahead of the 23.1% uh, total return of the FTSE All Share Index, although this trust does not have a formal benchmark. It is a multi-cap income trust. In other words, it's uh, free to invest across the entire market spectrum. And the share price total return was uh, even more impressive at 47.6% as the rating moved from a 5.4% discount to a 0.6% premium. Full-year dividend was increased to 3.75p, which is only a very modest increase on the previous year, and that did require drawing on revenue reserves, as the revenue return per share was 3.73p, so in other words, only 2p behind the, the proposed new full-year dividend. Uh, diverse Income Trust has also been managed by a gentleman called Gervais Williams and a colleague uh, and over the period it also has been issuing new shares uh, 3.4 million new ordinary shares so it's been great it's unusual for a investment trust that invests in smaller mid-cap shares as well as uh, large cap shares to trade at a premium but uh, this diverse income trust has been able to make some issuance notwithstanding. Uh, finally, I mentioned for Schroeder UK Public Private, this is the former Woodford Investment Trust, SUPP, where that has now made a second investment under its new managers at Schroeder's. They've made a 13.7 million US dollar investment in Revolut, which is a based uh, money transfer company, uh, one I've actually used myself briefly, and that's uh, investing in a funding round uh, led by SoftBank, uh, Tiger Global Management, another well-known uh, backers of private companies. And this values this uh, fintech business at 33 billion US dollars. And the proceeds will go towards uh, the growth plans for this uh, particular holding.
So those are all the results I'm going to mention this week. And we're going to move back to talking to Nick Greenwood about uh, what he's been up to, his distinctive style looking for special situations and uh, attractive discount opportunities in the investment trust sector. Nick, I'd like to kick off. We've talked a number of times recently, but I'd like to kick off just asking your general thoughts about the market at the moment. It's obviously been a good year so far for the equity market. It just seems to be going up steadily and uh, without any significant drawdowns. Uh, do you have any generalised thoughts about the market at the moment? What What are you feeling? Well, we've had a good run, you know, in my go, which is the trust I run and markets in, in general, because the, the governments and the authorities have been issuing enormous amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus. Not sure what that means in the in, in the longer term. It does feel though we've moved out of that phase. Now we've moved into summer, momentum seems to be breaking down. And you know, we are having all sorts of logistical problems with the economy. You know, managed to uh, break down on Tuesday and chance of getting the car sorted anytime soon because the mechanics are off with COVID and people are on holiday or whatever, you know, they're talking about September, for example. And there are lots of these glitches and I'm, I'm, it must sort of hold back the economy and maybe lead to a few earnings downgrades. So we're, we're more cautious. We're not particularly bearish, but we keep selling stuff and, you know, cash position has risen to, uh, to 12% in recent weeks or months. And, um, you know, I think, Having done this job for many, many years, sometimes if you find you're selling more than you're buying, the answer is don't fight it. It's probably the right thing to be doing. So we're, we're not calling a bear market, but you know, summer, lack of momentum, all sorts of um, uh, logistical problems in the economy as a result of the, of the pandemic and also you know, restaurants, bars not being able to find staff because you know, historically a lot of those, those industries relied on, on foreign workers, who, who you know, many of which have, have turned home. So I think this whole problem will have an effect on market, having no effect on markets at the moment because we're so used to, you know, the markets having a problem, the government will come and help fix it by giving us um, a few more billion pumped into the into the system. So uh, slightly on the cautious side, you know, and you think how far and how fast the markets have risen over the last 18 months or so, you know, a market does need to consolidate that gain. And I, I think those factors mean that um, maybe the markets will be on a backward step for long. And do you think when you look at the overall level of the, the market and you look at the investment trust sector in particular, I mean, is it something that you track how the kind of average level of discounts are or is it just something you live with every day? But can one actually read anything into the fact that discounts generally are pretty tight at the moment? I think that it tells you that, that sentiment is quite bullish. I think it's less relevant as the sector ceases to be a home for equities and is increasingly a home for alternatives. Because really, each trust is giving an indication of the of the sentiment levels in its own subsector. So, what's going on in residential property in Berlin, what's going on in mining finance, will be very different from what goes on in, in the FTSE. So, that as an indicator is is more difficult to track because there's so many moving parts. And you know, as I said, less relevant as the closed ending world becomes a natural home for alternatives. And we've seen a lot of style rotation in the last 12 months in particular. We see that there was a big kind of drive towards value. And then we've seen growth stocks coming back again. Again, how does that affect your portfolio? Do you think about that at all? Or you're just looking at uh, specific situations all the time? But uh, are you conscious of that? And does it ever influence your thinking? Not particularly, because we're looking at individual situations. Sometimes you can see, you know, for example, 18 months or so ago, very small companies in the UK get incredibly cheap and inevitably the discounts become wide 
And that may be an element of, you know, value stocks being out of favour. Although it's quite difficult to, to generalise, really, what's value and, and, and what's growth. I don't believe in the real world. It's as simple as some people say. So, you know, if we see a trend, we see something that's desperately out of favour, then if we can see a catalyst for change, if we can see a wide discount, then um, it's something we might own. Well, let's have a look at some of the things that uh, are in your portfolio and how they've been performing recently. I'm looking at performance over the last six months or maybe a year we could look at as well. And I'm looking at the kind of things that you own. There's Duke Royalty. There's, uh, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, EPE Special Opportunities, River and Mercantile, Chrysalis, and so on. So um, tell us about some of your kind of best performers at this point. Well, the best over the periods you're talking about is probably River Mercantile Microcap. It's actually quite a growthy portfolio, but because you know small caps sort of were deemed and got caught up in that whole value thing, it traded at a, a very wide discount. In fact, I think at the, the, the extreme, a little more than a year ago, it traded at a, at a 34 discount. The portfolio has performed extremely well. And it's a classic example of the double whammy. When you get the, the narrowing discount, it literally went from a 34 discount to a, to a small premium at a time when the portfolio was performing very well. So you know, what we like to find is what we call two-cylinder stocks. So you know, we were bullish about a recovery about small companies in, in the UK. A lot of them had suffered in the post-Woodford period where there was a move against owning small illiquid stocks. And therefore, you know, a lot of these perfectly good companies got thrown out with the bathwater. And therefore, they drew a bounce. We had a positive view on the manager. I mean, that trust had a previous manager left slightly under a, a cloud and the, the current manager was put in. Quite young, I think the market perceived as perhaps a little bit inexperienced and perhaps had been promoted a bit quicker than would be expected. We met him a couple of times and, and took a more positive view, um, and therefore, you know, we had a positive view on the manager, positive view on the on the asset class he was investing in. But we're always looking for a special situation. The special situation in this trust it has a very unusual structure because it invests in the very smallest companies on, on the UK stock market. It has a, um, a mechanism whereby if, if the portfolio becomes worth more than 100 million, that money is handed back to shareholders at around NAV. So, you know, we, we bought at a big discount and they've made two, you know, the portfolio bounced very sharply. It exceeded 100 million on two occasions. Lumps of cash were, um, were handed back to us at NAV, which is an enormous uplift given we bought in at 66 pence in the pound and then getting paid out at NAV. So it's, it's a classic example of where, the, you know, there's a very positive outlook for the, for the macro, but there is some kind of mispricing element that's not been picked up by the market and that's just fallen below the radar, as it had in the case of um, River and Mercantile. So in this case, what would you, how do you actually manage it? You obviously get some money back, but are you actually reducing the, the size of the position now as the discount? Yeah, the position was up over 5%. Today, it's around 2.5%. And it's a number of situations like that, which meant our cash position currently is, is around 12%. There have been a number of positions like that that have come into demand. Henderson Opportunities is a, another example that have traded consistently on a 20 discount, came into about a one discount. The market, lots of retail buyers, uh, and we, we sold into that. Artemis Alpha is, is another one. So, you know, we still hold positions in those trusts because we're very bullish about the outlook of the NAV. At that point in time, around May, when there's a lot of excitement in those, then we just kept feeding stock into the market, meeting demand, and you know, typically positions are half of what they were because we, as I said, we're, we're still bullish about the outlook. It's just you have less conviction when um, they're fully priced. I mean, looking back over the years, it's relatively rare when uh, 
investment trusts that specialize in small and, and to lesser extent mid cap companies do trade anywhere close to NAV. It's rare that they trade at the premium. So I guess that's a, a bit of a signal as well. At some point, presumably, uh, they may well revert to a, a larger discount. Some of these trusts. They may do. I think the reason why small caps, I mean, partly it's less liquid, which might be um, part of it. But also for many, many years, we had a chronic oversupply of smaller company investment trusts. When I first started doing this, it was, there was probably about 45. I mean, today there's a, a tiny fraction of, of that number. But sometimes when people get used to certain trusts or sectors trading at a certain level of discount, even though there is no longer a case of oversupply, many of these trusts have disappeared. There is a perception that small UK small caps trade on a wider discount. And the reason for that is gone. And therefore, discounts in that sector will probably be that much narrower going forward than they have been in the past. I mentioned Duke Royalty, but uh, and you also have a number of other special situations in the energy or energy-related fields. You have a particular interest in uh, uranium and nuclear as a sector. I mean, obviously, the energy complex has performed pretty well. Commodities have performed pretty well since the vaccination kind of surge. But your investment of these uh, companies is based not on a general view about where commodity prices are going, presumably. It's based on the particular circumstances of the uh, of the trust itself. Can you just explain, uh, you know, what your thinking is in, the, in that area? Yeah, we have two positions. We have uh, Yellow Cake, which is a physical owner of uranium. It owns, it owns the metal. And we have Geiger Counter, which tends to invest in developing mines or uranium mines. And therefore, the return profiles will be quite different. I think, you know, it's again, it's arbitrage perception reality. The perception of the nuclear industry is particularly poor in Western Europe. And it's perceived as a dying industry, which in that part of the world, it may well be. But, you know, in China and India, places that have got a much more pressing need to reduce pollution, nuclear reactors are are being built on a regular basis. And of course, you know, the old saying in the mining industry, the cure for low prices is low prices. And the the price of uranium has been very low ever since the Fukushima accident in 2011. And we're sort of conscious that there's increasing demand as new reactors come online. But, you know, the lead time to develop a uranium mine or any mine is many, many years, you know, typically five to seven years. So as we see increasing demand and a lack of supply, we're quite positive of the uh, outlook for uranium. More recently, I mean, the, the United States have conceded that uranium, for want of a better word, is green. I mean, it's, it's obviously some countries are now looking that to produce a base load. So if renewables are having problems like they did in Texas a few months ago when all the um, turbines throws, you have a base load dependable power coming from nuclear with the rest of it coming from renewable sources such as wind. So we've seen in the States, for example, put off the retirement of a number of reactors. And again, that means there's more need for these utilities to buy uranium. But it is noticeable that particularly in the US, a lot of these utilities just haven't entered contracts to buy. I mean, they're used to the price being quite depressed. And, uh, you know, at the moment, probably about 25% more uranium is being burned than being mined, and that's just going to get worse. So it's a, it's, a, it's a classic supply and demand type situation. Okay, so that's those two. And then let's talk a little bit about the private equity sector, which I know you have an interest in. We've often talked elsewhere about the fact that a number of private equity trusts are, are trading, still trading at big discounts, uh, something that the brokers keep mentioning. What's your involvement in that particular sector? And uh, tell us your thinking on the, on the trusts that you own yeah, I mean, that sector is performing very well at the moment. You know, private equity is becoming increasingly important. But I think the reason for these UK investment trusts trading on such wide discounts is that, you know, recent legislation has meant that um, a number of market participants, whether that be, you know, wealth managers or fund of funds, 
have to add the underlying OCFs of investment trusts they own to their own OCFs. Now, private equity has been extraordinarily successful and therefore performances and the like, they look incredibly expensive on the OCFs that they're publishing. And the reaction for many market participants who don't get the chance to explain to their clients why that number might look high are just selling the stock. And we love situations where people are selling us shares um, for non-investment reasons. Uh, and therefore, you know, despite the performance of trusts such as Oakley and NB Private Equity, which are our two core holds, being very good, there is lots of stock around in the market. There's a glut of unwanted shares. And um, at some point, those shares will find a new home, whether it's a new type of buyer who reacts to, you know, with a deep knowledge of private equity, reacts to these wide discounts by, you know, entering the market and, and buying UK investment trusts. Or maybe the trusts themselves decide to clear these overhangs by just buying in the shares for cancellation. At any event, you know, the supply and demand will get back into sync at some point. And, and maybe the trusts that are trading at around a 30 discount in real time might trade at 12 or 15 going forward. Plus, we can see from the performance of, of U.S. equivalents that you know the last quarter has been particularly strong. That won't be reflected in the up-to-date NAVs of a number of UK investment trusts for a while yet. So there, there is an element of you know these these trusts lagging, you know, all the NAVs that these trusts are declaring you know, lagging what's what's actually going on in the portfolios by some months. So the effective discount is somewhat lower, as you were saying. So why are these two in particular? Why NB Private Equity? Why Oakley Capital? Why did you pick those rather than some others? Yes, we've rotated out of names like Panfin, which we've held for many years. Both these trusts own a series of companies directly, rather than many of the uh, UK investment trusts that specialise in the sector, owning the range of other funds, which means we get much more visibility on, on, on how these companies are performing and can take a view. It's much more difficult when a trust owns a whole series of other partnerships and limited partnerships. So it's it's the visibility that we can get on these two trusts that tracks. And for whatever reason, they're trading on pretty wide discounts. Okay, so uh, I have to ask you a couple of questions about things that haven't gone quite so well. There's always a, a range in a portfolio. That may be partly for diversification reasons, that some things go up and others go down. But uh, Let's pick out a couple of names that I think have done less well for you, though I have to say the majority of your holdings have done very well. You've had a very good year. I have to acknowledge that, first of all. don't want to give the wrong impression. But uh, let's just talk about, I mean, one that a lot of people follow is Schroeder UK Public Private. They follow it for the wrong reasons because they're still stuck in it, probably. That's been disappointing. That hasn't yet sort of recovered, as you would hope. It has, although in fairness, we, we've only just bought it. We bought it after it ran into trouble. Although, funnily enough, we did go and do a couple of meetings in Oxford under the previous manager. I think two or three months ago, they sold a business called Kymab, which is a biotech for vastly more than, than the carrying value. And what that allowed was that it cleared the debt the trust has. You know, really, when Schroeder's first took it on, we felt they were a bit of a, a passenger, did not control the, the destiny of the trust because... The gearing was so high that it was up against the limits that they wouldn't have been able to back uh, an investment that was doing well, and therefore they would have been diluted. Uh, and the other point is that if they wrote down one or two failures, then that would take them into breach of the banking covenant. So it was very, very difficult. But by selling, I mean, they sold a package of biotechs to an outfit called Rosetta, which brought in a fair amount of cash. Kymab's brought in a fair amount of cash. The debt's gone, and therefore now they're in the position where they can back you know, and actually make new investments, which they weren't in before. So it's early days. It's about a 1% position. What is interesting that, you know, we've done a couple of meetings with the new team. The Schroders are chucking enormous resources at this trust and really want to make it work. 
and therefore it's one that we will collect on on bad days if, if the price drifts back perhaps below 30p. In the short term, we really want to focus on the likes of Oakley and NB Private Equity, who are you know, obviously in, in the same sector, because they've got lots of stuff in the portfolio that's coming right for sale and we'll, we'll get the uplifts, where I suspect the Schroeder Fund might be more of a, of a long-term core holding making. Okay, so let's just pick out one more. This is uh, Atlantis Japan. Do you still own that one? And, yeah, I still own that one. Yeah, and um, Discounters has widened. I know it's simplistic to describe growth and value, but this is an outright growth company. And over the period when you know we, we were writing on our, our annual reports, it had suffered because it's, it was a growth stock in the market when value was doing well. But it, it does look interesting. I mean, mid-caps in, in Japan, which is basically its um, uh, hunting ground, look quite interesting on the chart. It's rather unloved. Uh, it has a lot of um, value investors who may turn hostile on the register. So there's always scope for corporate activity there because the share register is so narrow on, on effectively on, on two or three names. And we think the manager's good. We do like the approach. There's a number of stocks in the portfolio that are very um, Japanese. You know, the business model you won't find elsewhere. For example, they have a corporate finance house that focuses on finding new owners for family businesses because a lot of people, a lot of families are finding that now the older generation coming up to retire, the younger generation remote don't remotely want to be involved in taking on the family control business. And therefore, this corporate finance house acts as a marriage broker to solve this very Japanese problem. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's one that had a quiet time last year. But over the time going, it, it's performed very well for us. And in terms of how you've been adjusting the portfolio, you obviously made some reference to the fact you've obviously built up your cash, you've cut down some of your positions. So have you made any significant changes in the last, shall we say, last uh, few months? Any new additions to the portfolio or is it more a case of just trimming or uh, adding to what you've got? Well, I don't think we've actually sold completely outright out any positions, although we have been selling Tufton Shipping last few days simply because we just begin to think that it's as good as it can get with all the distortions. Some of their boats are, are being let out at, um, you know, the charters are bringing maybe 20% of the, the value of the boat in a year. And there's a lot of interest in that sector. And sometimes things are just going so well, you know, you can't get any better and, and, and it's reflected in the price. So that one we've been selling down in recent days. Most of the cash, though, has come from selling sort of half the positions in things that we're talking about, such as River and Microcap. On the buy side of it, what we're talking about, the, the private equity stocks that we were talking about, Oakley Cap and MB Private Equity have been sort of steadily bought. Probably one worth mentioning, which we bought more earlier this week, is Georgia Capital, which slightly tongue-in-cheek we describe as a small investment trust owning a, a small Eastern European country. Um, but you know, a lot of the situations that we, we like are where perception has got out of sync with reality. And people are not particularly um, bullish on, on Eastern Europe at the moment. But, but what Georgia as a country does is it fulfills a role not dissimilar to what Singapore did in the earlier generations as being the sort of go-between between Asia and the West. You know, Georgia is doing that for, for, for Eastern European markets. The, the shares traded around about a 50% discount. And there have been a few technical factors that, that hurt the share price. It had an associate called Georgia Healthcare, which had pharmacies and hospitals in Georgia. It was listed in the UK. In that post-Woodford environment where people didn't want smaller companies, the shares fell to a very, very low price. They were advised to do a tender to buy in a, a lot of those shares. That made the company even smaller and therefore less people wanted to own it. So in the end, they mopped up the rump and 
issued shares in Georgia Capital itself for the remaining Georgia healthcare shares. Again, that just meant that lots of people got shares, issued shares in Georgia Capital they didn't really want in a relatively liquid market. So down they went to uh, an enormous discount. I think that people will believe the NAV once they sell some assets. Um, they did go through a phase where it was a bit like a stamp collection. It's like the first lap of the monopoly ball where they're buying all sorts of bits and pieces. But I think they now get the message that, you know, a much more um, trimmed down portfolio on a, on, a, on a few industries, such as water distribution, which they're, they're quite big on, would be easier to understand. And actually selling one of these assets, maybe the water business, to a, a, a multinational infrastructure company for hard cash would convince people that this, this 50% discount is real. Last time I looked in the ease of business index, which some people call the bribery index, you know, Georgia sits near the top, not where people would expect near the bottom. You know, I think last time I looked at one of these, I think the UK was at number six and the US was at number eight and Georgia was sat in between the two at number seven. So, you know, it, it's a very different in reality to how people see it. And the investment trust world is full of these very specialised funds that have fallen below the radar. If anyone sat down and looked at it, you could work out that it was incredibly cheap, the wrong price and really interesting. But nobody does because it's, you know, how would you ever come across it? And that, that's basically what we do. I mean, it's not rocket science. You know, the stuff we own and the stuff we're looking for has fallen so far below the radar for one reason or another that it's just not properly priced. And, um, you know, we get great access to the managers of these funds. The closed-ended world is it's great at providing access to fund managers. And you, you can learn a lot about this situation and buy in at, at a price that doesn't reflect the progress that's been made in the last couple of years. Do you think, though, that as the investment trust sector evolves, everybody says there's you know, all these subscale trusts in there, which are some of the things that you actually go looking at and uh, can make money out of. I mean, is that trend actually happening? We're not going to see so many of these situations in future, do you think? Well, I think the situation market is changing, and therefore we would have owned a lot of the subscale trusts in the, in the previous portfolios. Most of those will have disappeared or will continue to disappear or reinvent themselves or find a, an audience. What we have is a vast amount of issuance of new trusts. I mean, so in the last few weeks, we've got digital infrastructure, we've got another shipping funds, supermarkets, hydrogen, even a space trust. And where we make our money is when things come in and come out of favour. Now, go back only a few years, you'd have been thinking, well, Japan mid caps are out of favour and UK large caps are over. You know, it's, it was all mainly equities. We're now, you know, we, we have a a vast array of asset classes. There's always some asset classes coming into favour and other asset classes coming out of favour. So the range of opportunities to us are vast relative to what we were five years ago. And also, these new trusts are much bigger than the ones you were talking about. So, you know, a typical trust in our portfolio five years ago might have been 50 million or 100 million. Today, it's typically three or 400 million. So the world is changing, and that's to our advantage. And the reason why alternatives, which is encapsulates a wide range of asset classes, is such a good hunting ground for us is that the, the NAVs or the portfolio valuations that the trust put out are quite subjective in, in terms of the world. When you talk about equities or stocks and shares, you just run your Bloomberg or, or some other pricing mechanism and produces a, a figure which is issued as the, uh, as the daily net asset value. And that's a fair call to what the portfolios are worth. But in the alternatives world, methodologies get out of sync and therefore, our day job is working out what these portfolios could be sold for. What is the true value? So a good example, one of our larger stocks you know, is a residential landlord in Berlin called Phoenix Free. Set up as a rental landlord around 2005. But you know, the market is, is highly regulated. And we, we now have a two-tier market where the dead hand of regulation on flats that are 
rented out that have you know tenant rights is much lower than if those flats were split up and sold into the private market, you know, without all the regulatory and uh, burden. But the methodology takes the rental figure because that's what the trust was set up for, and and that methodology is sort of out of sync with what the landscape is like at the moment. And therefore, the true NAV will be a lot higher than the stated NAV. But the market is so used to investment trusts and closed-ended funds being equity funds that they still treat these NAVs as verbatim. And that's you know, where we add a lot of value. Well, it's a very good example, I think, of the kind of uh, specialist knowledge that you do. And that's always fascinating. Difficult for uh, many private investors to do the same kind of work as you do. But so uh, we're all grateful to hearing what you have to say. I wanted to ask you about a um, very fashionable subject of ESG. What do you uh, think about where we are in terms of how trusts that you look at are changing the way that they report or even behave? Are they? And secondly, how do you incorporate that into your own uh, approach to uh, investing? I think the first thing is to recognise that this is having an effect on share prices. And so there are areas that you might have invested in that is is increasingly difficult or will depress the NAV and, and therefore the NAV is lower than the stated NAV. So property is one an area that concerns us because you know it's becoming clear, for example, that you know it's going to be very difficult to rent older style buildings that don't meet the, the latest ESG requirements. And that the you know the market is becoming two-tier quite quickly, that you know the A and B categories, you know, there is a market for C, D, and E less so and you know future legislation comes it may not be rentable out at all so there are areas where you know you have to adjust your thinking about where where valuations are most of what we do is the g is is the governance side of it and there are always two or three situations where we're having to intervene quietly behind closed doors that something isn't quite right and you know it's behind closed doors because as soon as you go public then there's a lot of resistance where quietly you know behind closed doors, you can actually get some movement in, in management's policies, et cetera. Can you give us an example of that? I don't give a name necessarily, but just give an example of where you think that's been happening. Uh, well, an example that's in the public domain. I mean, there's, there's a few more recent things that aren't in the public domain that probably ought to not discuss. But, but one, India Capital Growth, which you know allowed its discount to get out to 42%, it triggered a reaction from ourselves and a couple of other shareholders to, to move for a a new capital structure because once you've allowed a discount to go out to to forty percent, no one's going to buy. You know, even if it comes into twenty, if it's been out to forty, then people are thinking, why wouldn't it happen again? So you've got to change the structure. And what's been brought in in response to that is an exit, which will now be in the next few months because this was action we took, you know, fifteen months ago. Um, shareholders will have the option to cash out at a six percent discount, and that was in response to the, as I said, the discount getting ridiculously wide. And I think you, when you're running an investment trust, you have to convince the market that you do care about the level of discount. It's probably more important than having a, a mechanistic discount control mechanism, which really means you lose some of the advantages of being a closed-ended fund because you know you effectively worry about redemptions and inflows in and out of the portfolio. Once the market's taking a view, you don't care about the discount, that's very difficult to repair. Okay, so I would like to ask you finally, Nick, about a, a special situation which has some interesting uh, wider significance, perhaps, and that is about your holding in Third Point Investors, which is a investment trust managed by a, quite a well-known U.S. hedge fund manager. Tell us uh, what's going on there and why you own that trust, and, and whether you think the situation is developing as you'd like. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a series of closed-ended funds which are feeders into, um, effectively, into Wall Street hedge funds. Uh, well, there were a lot. I mean, most have disappeared. The two big ones that survived really are Pershing Square and Third Point. Now, Third Point, the driving force behind Third Point is a guy called Dan Loeb. A couple of years ago, he went off to uh, live a life of philanthropy, but left with Potage in charge. Had a very bad COVID. A lot of the hedges didn't work, so he retook the reins. At this point, the discount was out at around 30%. So he viewed it as an interesting turnaround situation. The trigger that got us to buy was I you know, I take um, CNBC and watch it lasting at night. And they spent quite a lot of time with one program going through the third points, UK Investment Trust's monthly fact sheet. Now, UK Investment Trust monthly fact sheets are not normally the sort of thing that's covered on mainstream US television. But the reason I, I suspect, and I don't know the details, is that the disclosure requirements on a UK trust are much greater than a, than a Wall Street hedge fund. So the fact sheet declared that they'd taken a stake in, um, in Boeing. And actually, the Boeing price moved something in the region of 40% higher on the back of that, which is ironic because actually, Third point to bought Boeing fixed interest, not the equity. But you know, but the excitement it triggered. I just felt that I can't see Wall Street hedges wanting to live with that kind of disclosure, and that the thing would probably, at some point, if they couldn't get a following, would be wound down. And if you bought a perfectly good fund at seventy pence in the pound, and you you can see a catalyst for getting out of hundred pence in the pound, that's the sort of situation that we find attractive. How the world has panned out, not quite the same. I mean. There was a webinar that he did probably around February time, and I wish I could find it on YouTube, where somebody criticised or pointed out about the wide discount, and the fund manager rather lost it and was saying, well, we don't want you to take your money and go and whatever. And I don't wonder what his reaction if Campbell Soup, which is one of his activist positions, um, said the same to him. It would be interesting. But since then, the old British Empire, ABI, have actually requisitioned So if he was getting um, fairly aerated about um, somebody questioning the discount, quite what's going on behind closed doors and requisition, I don't know. But it's been quite a successful investment for us. The discount is trading. Last time I looked at 10 or 11 cents, we have fed some stock back into the market and we'll watch developments. You know, it's an interesting situation. It's a very colourful trust. But, you know, so often, and this is why the volatility and the correlations are so low with our trust and the market, is that low volatility is the natural outcome when you get the chance to buy stuff in at 70 pence in the pound, for example. Do you think there's a read across there to Pershing Square Holdings? I mean, they've talked about doing, wanting to do something to reduce the discount. Do you think that uh, they're taking that seriously? There are parallels, but I think the problem is, for whatever reason, this capital structure hasn't found favour within the UK. And now they're quite high expense funds, so they will be suffering from investors, wealth managers, not wanting to invest in something that's got high OCFs. So um, I think they will probably languish on, on discounts. You know, it's it's not liquidity, for example, because Pershing Square is enormous. You, know, you can buy and sell as, as as you like. So the structure just doesn't seem to have found favour. And as I said, most of them have disappeared. Indeed, they have. Well, Nick, that's very interesting and very fascinating, as always, to hear about uh, what's going on in some of these special situations across the investment trust universe. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you've had a very good uh, twelve months. So very happy about that. And. Uh, basically look forward to uh, talking again and thank you very much for joining us today not at all this has been a moneymakers investment trust podcast 
These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.